0: What's up, church? Who's excited to be in God's house on St. Patrick's Day weekend? I see some green out there. I had to get in on the green game myself. Happy St. Patrick's Day to all of you. It's so good to have you with us today. If this is your first time, my name is Pete. I serve as the lead pastor here, and we are excited to have you joining us. As you just heard Pastor Nate say, as we continue this series we've been in called The Darkest Hour, seven-week series that's going to take us right up until Easter that's based on a book that a pastor named Jack Hayford wrote almost 20 years ago that we have turned into a series called The Darkest Hour. The seven statements that Jesus made from the cross, which were certainly His darkest hour, and we're using those statements as somewhat of a backdrop to give us some life lessons to know how to respond when we're in our darkest hour. How to make it through our darkest hour and get to the other side. Because one thing I know about every single person here today is that you've all probably walked through some difficult things in life. It seems like, you know, that's just part of the human condition As we live in a broken world, a sin-filled world, and we walk through things that create, you know, doubt and question and darkness. And uh, maybe you're here and you're a student and you've experienced the pain of being bullied or picked on or teased. And you experience depression as a result of that. Or maybe you're here and you're married and you've wanted to have kids, but for whatever reason, you've not been able to. And you know, my wife and I can identify with you as we walk through a season of infertility as well. Maybe you've had multiple miscarriages or maybe you've even experienced the unforgettable, like I can't even imagine the pain of having to bury a child. That's just, I can't, I can't fathom that, the darkness that sets in. Or maybe you're married and your marriage isn't what you had thought it would be. And it's actually a living hell for you. And and you're trying to just wrestle and make it through another day. I don't know what it is, but we've all gone through different things in life that create these dark hours. Maybe you've lost your job and you've not been able to find another job to provide for your family. Maybe you deal with depression or anxiety, but The thing is, we can find hope when life hurts by looking to Jesus because he was a human being too, and he experienced difficult things. He walked through his darkest hours. And, you know, I want to point our attention again to the the theme verse that we've been looking at for this series. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, put it on the screen. We're going to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. And I know that's difficult when you're in your dark hours, but if we can just determine that we're gonna stay focused on keeping our eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race that we're in. He ran the same race that we're trying to run. He walked through this life and experienced the same challenges that we do. And so as a result, we're gonna study how he did it. How did he run this race? How did he make it to the finish line, having accomplished everything that God set out for him to accomplish? So this series is a way for us to try and study how he did it. Because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God, he kept his eyes on the prize. He knew that what he was experiencing wasn't all that there was, that the pain he was going through had an end and had a purpose. And because he never lost sight, he was able to put up with anything along the way. And he put up with a lot, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. What did he put up with along the way? We talked a little bit about that in week one. Jesus, in just the 12 hours leading up to his crucifixion, experienced five things that if any of us experienced any one of them would certainly create a dark night of the soul. But in just 12 hours, Jesus experienced these five things betrayal by one of his closest friends, false accusation, rejection by all of those that were close to him, that he had, you know, amassed this following of people who loved what he said and the miracles that he did, but all of a sudden he gets arrested and just rejected by everyone. Abuse, physical abuse, the torment of the brutality of the scourging, the whip, the mocking, the beating. Not to mention the crucifixion itself, the emotional abuse, and then lastly, humiliation as he was hung naked on a cross for all to see. He experienced all those things. And if you weren't here in either of the previous two weeks, I just want to give you a quick recap of what we've talked about. In week one, we looked at the first statement Jesus made from the cross, which is when he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And from that, the lesson we learned is that the first thing we should do when we're in our darkest hours is to forgive everyone who's hurt us. And then last week, we looked at the second statement he made when he turned his attention to the thief on the cross next to him, when he said, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And the lesson we learned from that is that when we're going through our difficulties or our darkest hour, instead of focusing On our own problems. We're instead going to look to others and try to help others who are experiencing our same struggle. So that was the last two weeks. And if you missed either of them, I would encourage you to maybe listen to the podcast on our website. But today we're going to look at the third statement that Jesus made from the cross, which you can actually find in the fourth gospel. You can't find all seven statements in any one of the gospels. You've got to put all four gospels together to be able to see each of the seven statements. And this third statement appears in John's gospel because it involves John. And so that's why we find it in John's gospel. And it's interesting when you read the book of John, um, the the way John referred to himself. John had a very, uh, let's say, high opinion of himself. Uh, He wrote it in the third person, but he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Which I find funny because it's like he's telling all of the other disciples, like Jesus might have liked you guys, but he loved me. Like, me and Jesus are tight. I love how the personality of each of the writers comes through in the Gospels. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And so after addressing the thief on the cross next to him, which we looked at next, or last week, Jesus turns his attention to a small group of followers and family that had gathered at the scene of the crucifixion. So in John chapter 19, verse 25, we see this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So Jesus' mother is at the scene of the crucifixion, along with three other women who, in my opinion, were probably there to attend her. I mean, imagine, you know, if you're going to watch your son hang and die on a cross, you would want some emotional support with you. So I think Mary probably reached out to these ladies and said, will you come with me? I don't know that I can do this alone can't imagine the heartache she must have been feeling in that moment. Her maternal instincts being just ripped to shreds, watching her son experience that kind of pain. And no doubt that the anguish of watching her son, you know, go through the brutality of the cross was probably front and center in her mind. I can't help but wonder if there was maybe a looming or growing question in the back of her mind. I mean, I know that the the concern and grief she's experiencing for her son is probably, you know, front and center, but in the back of her mind, there's got to be this question rising, like, when he's gone, what's going to happen to me? You see, because Jesus was Mary's oldest child, and Mary was likely under his care for probably many, many years. See, we don't know, scholars don't know what happened to Joseph, who was Mary's husband and Jesus's earthly father, but there's no mention of him after Jesus is 12 years old. There's a story where, you know, they're in the temple when he's 12 years old, and they leave him behind, and then it says his mother and father come back to find him. But from that point, when Jesus is 12, we never again hear of Joseph being mentioned. So most scholars believe that Joseph was probably many years older than Mary and likely died while Jesus was a teenager. And so being the oldest child, Jesus would have stepped into the role of assuming the responsibility for taking over his father's business and assuming the responsibility of caring for his family. And so here is the one who's been providing for her and protecting her. All of a sudden, about to die. The one who's been her covering in a society where women very frequently became disenfranchised by the deaths of the men in their lives. And so however strong her concern and grief is for her son, I I can't help but imagine that there's this question about her future and what's going to happen to her in the back of her mind. So his mother is standing there as he's hanging on the cross. And in verse 26, When Jesus sees his mother there and the disciple whom he loves standing nearby. Again, John referring to himself there. And it's interesting because John is the only one in all the four gospels that we can tell of the disciples that was actually at the scene of the crucifixion. All of his other disciples who spent three years with him had fled because of fear. But John being close with Jesus was there. And so seeing John standing close by, Jesus looks at his mom and he said to her woman here's your son and to the disciple here is your mother and from that time on john writes that disciple took her into his home now at first glance it doesn't seem like this statement really compares to some of the weightier statements that jesus made from the cross and in all honesty if i'm going to be completely like transparent with you guys today of the seven weeks of the series, this is the week I was least looking forward to. Like it, it didn't, at first glance, seem like there was anything really inspirational to teach on or preach about. Just felt like Jesus was taking care of some family business. But as the week wore on, as I prepared uh, this week, I began to see some things that I've missed in the past. Some things that I think carry some real theological and practical impact and significance for our lives. See, nothing Jesus ever said was an accident. And Jesus was being very intentional with his words here and his actions, I think to give us a glimpse into the heart of God. And in order to understand the significance of these words, we once again have to remind ourselves of the context in which he is saying them. Amidst everything he's endured to this point, the unimaginable pain he's experiencing, fighting for every breath He somehow has the wherewithal in the midst of all of that to peer through the blood and the sweat dripping into his eyes and see his mother, the one who gave birth to him, the one who changed his diapers, the one who raised him, who cleaned his scrapes on his knee when he fell down as a child, the one who comforted him when his friends made fun of him. It blows my mind that in his present condition in excruciating pain, Jesus had the ability to be aware of and think about his mother's future. And saying to his mom, here is your son. He's basically saying, mom, this is the guy who's going to take care of you from now. on. it's not going to be me anymore. And in saying to John, here is your mother. He is assigning the responsibility of his mother's care to this disciple. He's assigning her to the disciple that was closest to him. He's basically saying, John, please take care of my mom from now on. And it's a responsibility that he apparently gladly accepted because he wrote that from that point on, this disciple took her into his home. He cared for, for her from that point forward. In these statements, you know, Jesus, I think, gives us an example in our darkest hours that we need to refuse to allow our present pain to dull our sensitivity to the needs of others who depend on us. And I got to be honest with you here today, like, that ain't me, I struggle with this. And I was preparing, I was like, Jesus, I want to get better at this because when I'm in pain, like, I want people to take care of me, you know the man cold is a real thing. And all the women here said amen, right? Like when we're in pain, like I want people to doubt, to dote on me and to take care of me. And I want people to know how much pain I'm in. And I think largely human beings generally are pretty selfish when we're going through a difficult season, like take care of me, but that's not Jesus. In his darkest hours, he continued to put others, people's needs before his own as he now takes care of making sure that his mother's needs are going to be met after he's gone. And what's interesting to me about this is that Jesus could have said this at any point in his journey. Like even the night before, 12, 15 hours earlier, they're all gathered around the table for the last supper. And in John's gospel, we we read that, you know, Jesus and John were so close that John actually reclined and rested his head on Jesus's chest. Like they were very close friends. And in that moment, Jesus could have just leaned down and said, you know, John, you don't know this, but I'm I'm about to die. And and when I'm gone, I want you to take care of my mom. But he didn't say it then. He could have said it to them after he had risen from the dead, before he ascended back to heaven, because he spent some time with them and had conversations with them. But he didn't say it then. Why did he choose this moment? Because he could have Spoken these words at any moment. And this is the only one of the seven statements that Jesus made from the cross that didn't have to be said from the cross. The other six statements were either a direct fulfillment of prophecy that had to be spoken by the Messiah during the death of the Messiah, or they were a response that Jesus gave to a question that he was answering because he was on the cross. But this is the only one of the seven statements that he makes that didn't have to take place from the cross. And yet nothing Jesus says is ever on accident. So why did he choose this moment to speak to his mother's future and her needs, even though he was about to give his life? I think Jesus was revealing something to us. He was giving us a picture of God's love and care for us that I think a lot of us honestly miss. It's a beautiful picture of the way he cares for us. And I think we need to pause for a moment and spend some time to really see this and understand this because in the midst of him, you know, showing that he loves us more than anything else by taking care of our greatest need, which is forgiveness for our sin. He's also at the same time showing us that his love and care goes beyond just our salvation and it goes to the the smallest details of our life. He loves and cares for us, yes, by offering salvation, but he also cares for us in the things that that matter to us, the things that concern us. He's involved in the intimate and smallest details of our lives. And in these statements, Jesus teaches us another lesson about how we can become more like him as we go through our darkest hours, how to find hope when life hurts. And so lesson number three that I want to give you today from these statements is this, that when we're in our darkest hour, we need to take care of those closest to us. Take care of those closest to you. Now, why is, why is this important? I think if we're honest, we all have a tendency to presume that the people who are closest to us will automatically understand the pain we're going through and just take it upon themselves to assume those problems as their own. We make a lot of presumptions in our pain. Not only do we want people to know that we're in pain, but I think we, we want people to feel and experience the same pain that we're experiencing too. I mean, how often do you maybe come home from work and you've had a lousy day? Maybe, you know, your, your boss reprimanded you or, you know, it was just like one of those days where everything goes wrong and then you come home and you can't help but like just vomit all of that frustration onto your wife and kids. I don't know how many of you are willing to be honest with me here today, but I know that I struggle with this sometimes where I come home and like I'm giving the silent treatment or I'm like slamming cupboard doors or like I'm like stomping around the house. And my dad did that when he was angry. And I hate the fact that I do that too, right? It's like, you know, I had a bad day and if I had a bad day, everyone's going to have a bad day. Because if mama or daddy ain't happy, ain't nobody going to be happy. Right, and we don't mean to do this, but it's a natural response sometimes for some of us because hurting people tend to hurt people. Right, when we're hurt, we take it out on those closest to us, we wound, we neglect, we ignore. When I'm going through a difficult time, I have a hard time not letting my pain. Um, not affect my interactions with my wife and my children, which winds up hurting them. You know, my oldest son, Samuel, just turned nine yesterday, and he is a very special kid. And, you know, he's got this incredible sensitivity to the mood of a room and especially the disposition of others. Like he can really pick up very quickly when, you know, you're not acting like yourself or when something's a little bit off. And just a week or so ago, I don't even remember what I was going through or what I was ticked off about, but I was upset and I was putting him to bed. My wife and I snuggle with both our boys each night when we go to bed and I'm laying there and I'm withholding affection from him because I'm angry and he's suffering the result of my inability to compartmentalize and to not let it affect him. And so he says to me, daddy, what's wrong? And I said, oh buddy, you don't need to worry about it. And he's like, no, I can tell there's something bothering you. What's wrong, Daddy. And I don't even remember what I said to him in that moment to try to explain why I was acting so like gruff. But he said, don't focus on the negative, daddy. Speak life. And I was just like, (laughs) he starts preaching to me the things that we're trying to teach them. And I realized like he was basically saying, hey, dad, don't rob me of our bedtime routine where you get to speak life to me because you've had a bad day. And I wonder how often we do that, where we're in pain and we want other people to feel the pain that we're feeling. And so even unknowingly, sometimes we project that onto others, but that should never be the attitude of a Christ follower. See, as Christians, to follow Jesus' example means that I give up any perceived right I think I have to force other people to pay the price of my pain, no matter how close they are to me his way is clear. When you're in your darkest hour, we need to take care of those closest to us. Don't transmit your trauma onto them. They may share it with you, like Mary and John shared Jesus' trauma with him. They were there willingly, but don't force the people closest to you You shouldn't dump it on them and you shouldn't force them to involuntarily bear the burden of what you are walking through. Don't pass your pain onto them. Don't transmit your trauma onto them. We need to learn from Jesus who even though he was in his darkest hour continued to be others focused, to take care of those closest to him. Which means if you're married, that would be your husband or your wife. If you have kids, that's gonna include your kids. If you're single, maybe that's your parents or your siblings or your closest friends. If you're a leader of any kind, a boss, a manager, a teacher, it would be, you know, the people on your team that you have the privilege to serve. We need to take care of those closest to us. And so how do we do this? So I want to give you four things today that will, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write these down. Some decisions you can make, some things that you need to think about that will help you to take care of those closest to you when you're in your darkest hours and not hurt them. If you don't want to hurt them because that's what we tend to do, we project our pain. If you want to stop doing that and instead be able to better care for those close to you, I want to give you these four things. Number one, identify the real problem and the real need. See, a lot of times when we're in our darkest hour, we don't always have a real clear picture of what the real problem is. And as a result, we don't always know what to do about it, how to fix it, or how to take care of those closest to us. And so rather than taking care of them, we wind up hurting them in the process. And a lot of times I think when we're going through our darkest hour, we assume that a person or a group of people are responsible for the pain that we're in. And I'm not minimizing or discrediting any of the pain that you've experienced because of something that someone did or said to you. But I I want to remind you of something that the Apostle Paul reminded the Ephesian church, which is that people are not the problem. No matter what people have done or said to you, we're engaged in a very real battle. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggle is not against people, it's not against flesh and blood. No matter what anyone has done to you, there is a spirit behind that that is the real enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. The authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Listen, I'm not a person that believes there's a devil under every rock, but I want to remind you, church, that we are engaged in a very real spiritual battle. There is an unseen world around us, and no matter what you think, people are not the problem. The devil, your adversary, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the real enemy. That's the problem. We have to identify that. So you might be wounded at work, but that doesn't mean you get to come home and assume that your spouse shares responsibility in that. We're not going to project our pain. We've got to identify the real problem. But we also have to identify the real need and be realistic about our ability to meet those needs as we take care of others. We are not called to meet every single need of the people that are closest to us. A person's age or stage of life will determine what needs you can or can't meet for them. You're gonna care for a five-year-old differently than you're gonna care for the needs of maybe an elderly parent. We've gotta recognize what the needs are and how, like, realistically, what needs do I have the ability to help meet or take care of? Because notice that even Jesus didn't try to meet all of his mother's needs. He just connected her to someone who would be able to provide for her basic needs. You know, as a staff, we've been going through this book, The Servant, written by James C. Hunter, a simple story about the true essence of leadership. And if you're a boss, if you're a manager, if you're a parent, if you're a leader of any kind, if you have any teams, I could not recommend this book more, The Servant. But we've been going through this as a staff trying to understand the principles of servant leadership. And one of the definitions that he gives in here for leadership or a leader is someone who needs to, um, meet, to identify and meet the legitimate needs of the people that he or she serves. To identify and meet the legitimate needs of the people that he or she serves. Because we've got to understand that like there's a difference between needs and wants. There are going to be wants that people who are close to you have that they might even express to you they want you to meet for them, but there's a difference between a want and a need. So we've got to identify the legitimate needs. And then he introduces this concept that maybe some of you have heard about before, but I had never heard until we were going through this book. In 1943, Abraham Maslow wrote in a paper for psychology, the hierarchy of human needs. And I'm gonna put up a graph on here for you to kind of give you an idea that all human beings have needs. And these needs are broken up into five different levels. And a person's motivation to have these needs met, are contingent upon the needs of the level below it being met. So a person can't really uh, pursue the needs for belonging and love until their needs for food and shelter and safety are met. Does that make sense? And so as a person, we've got to recognize what we have the ability to help meet for a person. Like And depending on a person's age, I don't think you can ever meet a person's need beyond level three, maybe level four, the esteem needs, like that feeling of, of wanting recognition for something that you've done, what's your worth, or ultimately your self-actualization, like wanting to know the purpose for which you were created and to become the best that you can possibly be. Only God can help a person find out for themselves what he created them to do. And so a lot of times we wind up getting frustrated or we get involved in this dysfunctional cycle because we're trying to meet needs for people that were never ours to meet. So identify not only the real problem, but what the real need is. Even Jesus didn't try to meet every single one of his mom's needs. So maybe you're going to help take care of a person's physiological needs, like their food, shelter, clothing, things like that. And once that's being met, then maybe you're going to make sure that they're safe. But I just wanted to put this up there so that we can understand that if we're going to help take care of those closest to us when we're at our darkest hour, we can't take too much on ourselves that we don't have the ability to meet. So we've got to identify the real need. And knowing what needs you can and can't meet and taking care of those closest to you when you're in your darkest hour is the first step. So the second step after we've identified the problem and the need is avoid the pity party. Can we avoid the pity party? There's, you know, I know misery loves company and we all have a tendency when we're going through something, you know, for other people to feel sorry for us. And I I hesitated even putting this one on there because I don't want you guys to misunderstand me because you've heard me often say that it's okay to not be okay. And that is absolutely true. When you're in your darkest hour, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to grieve when you're going through a difficult time. It's okay to ask for help. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about people who are in legitimate need that need help to get through their darkest hours. I'm talking about when people just wallow in self-pity. And they take every opportunity to try to get other people to feel sorry for them. That's what I'm talking about. We're just not gonna go there. We're gonna refuse to make this about us when we're in our darkest hours. We're not gonna cast all of our cares and all of our struggles and all of our pain onto the people around us. We're gonna cast it onto Jesus because he's the one who cares for us. And he's the one as we keep our eyes on him that's gonna give us the strength to endure. That's what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 7, that we're gonna cast all of our anxiety on him because he cares for you. And that word cast in the original language literally means to hurl. Like with all of your might, you're going to throw as far from you, as hard as you can, all of the things that create anxiety in you, the things that are causing you to feel pain in your darkest hour. You're not going to cast them on people. You're going to cast them on Jesus because he cares for you. Nobody can carry these cares in this life on our own. We weren't designed to, we weren't created to, and we don't have to. There is a God who took on the sin of the world and everything that creates pain in your life. He carried it with him on Calvary's cross and he cares for you. We're gonna cast it on him first. So we're gonna identify the real problem and the real need. Secondly, we're gonna avoid the pity party because feeling sorry for yourself isn't gonna change your situation. In fact, usually more often than not, it makes you feel worse. It doesn't change your situation. So we're going to refuse to make it about us. And the third thing is we need to be intentional to be connected in community. Be connected in community. Because what's the first thing that most people do when they go through a difficult season? They withdraw. And they isolate themselves. We've got to resist the tendency that a lot of us have. The moment we start going through tragedy or trauma or a dark hour to isolate ourselves because... We need to be connected in community if we're gonna help take care of those who are closest to us while we're in our darkest hour because we can't do it by ourselves, which is why I'm so excited that last week we saw over 50 people get connected into community at our Connect event last week. I love that because we say here that life is better connected. We wanna be connected in community because people who are in a small group experience accountability, belonging, and care. You're gonna receive care when you've prioritize being in a group with people who are going to walk through life with you and help you survive the lows. You're going to receive care and you're also going to be able to provide care to other people who go through difficult seasons in life. We say it this way. One of the values that we have at this church is we belong and become with authenticity. See, we can't become the people that God's called us to become until we know who we belong to. And we can't belong to a group of people until we've made the decision to live our lives in an authentic way with them, to be real about our struggles, our doubts, our pains, and share life with them. And they wrap their arms around us and we receive care. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, that we're to carry each other's burdens and in this way, fulfill the law of Christ we're going to be connected in community. We're going to carry each other's burdens. It's hard to carry other people's burdens if you're isolated and alone. Right? The only way we can help carry each other's burdens if we're connected in community. And when we do that, we fulfill the law of Christ. And some of you might ask, "Well, what's the law of Christ? I thought we were under grace, not under law." Well, Jesus said, "A new commandment I give to you, that you what? That you love one another." as I have loved you. That's the law of Christ. It's loving people the way he loved us. And in his darkest hour, Jesus took care of those closest to him by connecting them in community. We've gotta be connected in community. You can put it this way. See, a lot of times we assume that maybe it's a person's natural family Uh, It's their responsibility to take care of a person when they're going through a dark hour. And that may or may not be true, but not everyone's family operates that way. A lot of families have broken relationships and dysfunction. And Jesus, by speaking to John and Mary, his mother, formed a new family. You could put it this way. Families are forged at the foot of the cross. In dark hours, it may not be your natural family. It may be a new spiritual family that Jesus forges at the foot of the cross that will help carry your burden, that will help meet your needs. Families are forged at the foot of the cross. And regardless of whether you have a dysfunctional family who isn't there for you, guess what? We'll be your family. Get connected to the church, to the body of Christ, and we'll help carry your burdens. We'll help meet your needs when you're in your darkest hour. And even if you have a fantastic family, it's still important for us as followers of Jesus to prioritize and pursue being connected in community with God's family. This is a spiritual family. I'm amazed at how many people I talk to that will tell me that their relationships with their brothers and sisters in Christ in the church are stronger than even their relationships with their natural family, with their siblings or their parents. We're a spiritual family. And we've got to be connected in community if we're going to be able to adequately help care for those who are closest to us when we're in our darkest hour. And if you're wondering, you know what? I don't have a lot of people that are close to me. Who who is this referring to? Like, just as a clue, those who are with you in your darkest hour are those who are closest to you. Jesus' other disciples deserted them. Only his mother. Like, Mary had other kids. But none of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So Mary's there with a couple other women and John. And so those who are with you in your darkest hour are those who are closest to you. And that's where families are forged at the foot of the cross. So the last thing I want to give you today to help you take care of those closest to you when you're in your darkest hour, is we're going to finish where we started. And that's to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's what Hebrews said to keep your eyes on Jesus. And listen, I get it. I know that this is easier said than done. It sounds like, you know, a trite cliche because when the storm clouds of life roll in, it can be difficult to know what to focus on. It's hard to see in the dark, in the darkest hour. Like, where do we look? I can't see, you know, in front of me. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to take care of those closest to me when you're in that season. We've just got to make the decision to keep our eyes fixed on the one who set the example for us. The best way to take care of those closest to us is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who for the joy of a restored relationship with you and I endured the cross. I find that when I'm focused on my own Needs when I'm in pain, I tend to neglect those who are closest to me. But when I look at Jesus, I'm reminded that even in my darkest hours, I still have a responsibility to take care of those closest to me. And listen, there's, I know that this goes against the grain of our human instinct, even sometimes. But there is a supernatural grace available to you, Christian, that you can tap into when you're in your darkest hour. Paul wrote in Romans 5.5 that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive inside of you, and the same love that Jesus had for his mother in his darkest hours to take his eyes off of his own pain and look to the needs of his mother is alive inside of us and will give us the strength and the grace and the ability to help take care of those who are closest to you, even when we're in our darkest hour. It's a supernatural grace. I love that. The song that we sang, that we introduced today, I'm going to raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. Jesus spoke these words from the cross with his enemies surrounding him. The Romans who nailed him there, the Pharisees who put him there are all surrounding him and he still was intentional to lead and speak words of care and comfort and take care of those closest to him even though he was in his darkest hours. And by the same spirit, we have the ability to look beyond our own pain and take care of those who are close to us. You know, I'm reminded of when I was younger, when my father passed away, I was 21 years old. And I know I've shared this story many times, but I also know that the church has grown and there are many people here who may not have heard this before. So if you've heard it, just bear with me. My dad was workaholic, you know, worked full-time at the Ford Stamping Plant and also pastored a church full-time. Constantly on the go, always busy. And for a couple weeks before his passing, he started to get real tired and went to the doctor finally. And the doctor called him up on a Monday after the test results came in, said, Pete, I want you to... um, you know, check yourself into a hospital. There's some alarmingly low levels in your blood counts. And so he checked himself in on a Monday. And I, you know, didn't think anything real serious about it because they hadn't told us anything serious yet. Until Thursday, I got a call from my mom who said, you need to bring your brother and your sisters to the hospital. We've got some news that we want to share with you. And when we all gathered around, the doctor shared with us that he had something called myelodysplastic syndrome or pre-leukemia, which I guess is just another form of leukemia, and they said that he had two years to live. And two days later, he was gone. I remember that morning, it was a Saturday morning, I had come to the hospital to relieve my mom who had the night shift. She had sat with him all night long, and I came in the morning to relieve her so she could get home and get some sleep and take a shower. And I was actually in the room with my dad when he passed. My sister was in the waiting room. And I remember going to deliver the news to my sister, who was real young at the time. I don't remember, 10, 12 years old. And she just lost it, ripped every couch cushion off of the love seat that was in the waiting room and was throwing it and just screaming and crying in shock and disbelief that our dad was gone. And I remember making a call to my mom have her come to the hospital. I didn't tell her on the phone, but I met her right at the elevator as soon as she got off the elevator and broke the news to her. And she screamed at the top of her lungs and everyone's looking, trying to figure out what all this noise was about. And I remember just catching her as she just collapsed into a puddle on the ground as her husband was gone. And I remember in that moment making the decision as the eldest in my family, the oldest of four, That I had a responsibility to take care of my family, that I didn't want my mom, who had just lost her husband, to worry about the details of the funeral and everything else. And so I made a decision to take care of those closest to me, even in my darkest hour. And that doesn't make me special. That doesn't make me, you know, stronger than you. It just, you know, I, I knew that there was a grace available to me that I was able to tap into, that even though I was going through the worst season of my life, having just lost my father that I was able to let God's spirit give me strength, this, this supernatural grace that's available to every single one of us here today to take care of those closest to you, even when you're in your darkest hour. And the way we do that again, as we get ready to close, is identify the real problem and the real need. Don't try to meet needs that you don't have the strength to meet. Don't try to meet wants. Identify the real problem, the real need. Avoid the pity party. Just don't make it about yourself. Don't even go there. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be connected in community. Surround yourself with people who will help you care for those closest to you when you're in your darkest hour because you can't do it alone. And we're gonna keep our eyes on the one who endured the darkest of darkest hours and set an example for us to show us what it means and what it looks like and who's placed his spirit within us to give us the same grace to do what he did. Would you bow your heads and let me pray for you today? Lord, I don't know where everyone's at here today. Lord, I just wanna begin this prayer the same way I did in the last service, which is to say that I'm sorry for approaching your word with anything less than awe and reverence. As I even struggled and complained about having to preach a message that I at first didn't understand. But Lord, these are red letter words that we read about in John's gospel, words that you spoke, and you never spoke a word on accident. You were never random. Everything you said was on purpose for a purpose, and I pray this morning, God, that no matter where we're at in life, whether we're in a dark season or not, you would give us strength and hope to Keep our eyes on you to know that even when we're in our darkest hour, God, when we're in pain, by your spirit, we have the ability to look beyond our own need, to help take care of those closest to us. God, if we've thrown pity parties in the past, would you forgive us for that, for making it us about us? Would you give us the strength and the courage to take that step, Lord, even though it's awkward and intimidating maybe, but Lord, we need to connect ourselves to the community of faith that is your family, that you would forge new families at the foot of the cross. But Lord, that ultimately we would be a people who live our lives following in your footsteps. Give grace today, Lord. Give grace. And I don't want to pass up any opportunity. I know I do this just about every week. But I also know that every week we have people coming in for the first time and I never know where people are at in in their spiritual journey. And so with all heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to ask if there's anybody here today who's never taken the step to Receive the forgiveness that God offers you through the death and resurrection of his son. If you've never asked him to come in and live in your heart and surrender your life to him, let him be the leader of your life, the one who calls the shots, the one who you're gonna follow and model your life after his teachings. Then, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, if you wanna make that decision today, would you just simply raise your hands here so we can pray and welcome you into God's family if you've never received forgiveness for your sins, I see that hand here in the center. God bless you. I'm so proud of you. Anybody else here today that wants to step into God's family by accepting the forgiveness that he offers you through his sacrifice? Well, church, would you join me in praying this prayer with those who are saying yes to Jesus? Say, Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me enough to die for me, to pay the price for my sin. Forgive me, wash me, cleanse me. I believe that you are the Son of God, and I give my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the strength and the power to live for you, to follow you, to serve you every day of my life for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. I give it to you. Be my leader and my Lord. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Church, can we welcome those born into God's family today?